0: Tonight's reading is from Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is the word of the Lord. One of the great joys of libraries is stumbling into books that you never knew existed, um, that you find much more interested in the book you were supposed to be reading. Um, one afternoon, about a dozen years ago, I was studying for a master's in history at UT in the third floor of Hodges Library, and I saw a book with an odd title, Religious Melancholy and the Protestant Experience in America. Not a bestseller, perhaps, um, but I was very interested, put down the book I was supposed to be reading, and spent the next three hours in my carol reading this one which might explain why I never finished that doctoral degree. <laughs> and the, the writer begins, he says, in his doctoral work, he studied Connecticut mental asylums during the Second Great Awakening. And he was surprised to find hundreds of cases of people converted during this great revival who later felt so forsaken by God were paralyzed with fears of displeasing him that their minds shattered. And the book is about uh, people who have become mentally ill um, as they've wrestled with distorted presentations of the gospel. It's filled with stories like uh, Benjamin Noyes. Noyes was a Yale divinity student in the early 1800s and he kept a A diary. He was a deeply pious young man. He was active in a campus revival ministry. He would often fast and pray late into the night. The preachers of the day were stressing uh, the the importance of an intimate, emotional encounter with the living Christ. Uh, But they also said that if you lacked that kind of experience with Christ, it probably was due to sin, and that if you were struggling with habitual sin, you could be a hypocrite. And if you were a hypocrite, you may have committed the unpardonable sin. Now, those are some of the themes in the theological soup of the day. Well, the young man's diaries reveal uh, an adolescent in anguish. If you read between the lines, he appears to be struggling with a with an issue that many young Uh, men and women struggle with. And he he could not stop it, and he felt that God would never forgive him. So he would pray longer and fervently. Uh, One friend observed that he would come down from an all-night prayer session in his room, quote, in extreme exhaustion and wretchedness. Well, this went on for months. He sunk deeper into depression. His parents pleaded with him. Um, But he was convinced he was such a miserable hypocrite That one night he he went out to uh, the Saugatuck River, plunged into the icy waters, ending his life. And he left behind a suicide note for his family and he said, The devil is very active and artful. He has got fast hold of me so that I am entrapped. I think that story illustrates uh, an important point, that sometimes Christian doctrine, uh, slightly distorted or presented in an imbalanced way, even if it is trying to highlight uh, a gospel truth, can cause great suffering in the people of God. This is something I've thought a lot about, um, and it might be a uh, a conversation for a small group or something like that. Of uh, What are some of the, the Christian teachings that have just been twisted a little bit and actually hurt you? Because you know the, the worth of a teaching by its fruit, right? I mean, Jesus says you know a tree by its, by its fruit. Well, I think this is especially true with shame. Um, I want to be careful of what I'm going to say tonight, um, uh, but, but I do need to say it. Uh, Some well-intended Christian teaching causes, instead of heals, shame. Let me say that again. I believe that some well-intended Christian preaching and teaching, some that has come from me over my career, actually causes shame instead of healing it. Now, last week I, I suggested if you're going to read one book on shame, it would be Lewis Smead's Shame and Grace, and uh, he talked about the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt is feeling bad about something I've done. Shame is a feeling that I am bad. He says, the feeling of shame is about our very selves, not about some bad thing we did or said, but about who we are. It tells us that we are unworthy, we're unacceptable, that God must be disgusted. Now, Anytime we're trying to be faithful to our scriptures and we're trying to talk about sin and the cross, there's always this tension with with wanting to be faithful by talking about our sin uh, and honoring the glory of God and the beauty of the redemption on the cross. Sometimes I think in an attempt to highlight the value of the cross, to highlight the glory of God, we so focus on our sins that we communicate that, that, that really all I am is a disgusting, vile sinner who has been forgiven. And that the only thing that's good about me is that Christ has forgiven me. Sometimes we see this in our hymnody. Uh, here's a 17th century hymn from Isaac Watts. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? I was reading a little uh, blog about this, and the the person noted that in the 19th century, they changed the words to uh, sinner instead of worm. And uh, this this writer was saying that was a, a travesty, and that in his church, they'd scratched back in worm because he wanted to make sure that we understood our sinfulness. I'm just not sure, actually I'm pretty sure, that that's not consistent with the biblical record of who we are. A prayer of the Church of England. I don't think it's in the current Book of Common Prayer. It says that we should confess our sins like this. We are to declare, there is no health in us, And then pray, but thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. An old German Lutheran confession says that we should say, all my nature and being is deserving of punishment. And again, I think I understand the intent here in these prayers and hymns. Uh, we, We should be honest about our... Our sins, 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We are to oppose sin, Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self. It belongs to your former manner of life. Uh, we may even wrestle violently with sin. I think Paul's testimony in Re- Romans 7 is an illustration of that. Uh, sometimes we might feel miserable about our sin. David's penitential psalms show that. But are we primarily forgiven worms? Is it really true that the holiest person is the one who seems to feel the most wretched and thankful for grace? Is my core nature disgusting? Is there nothing healthy about me? Is it really true that God is repulsed by my very being? Now, we could have a a conversation tonight about how God sees all human beings. I would argue that based on the doctrine of the image of God, he doesn't see any human being as as disgusting. But tonight we're focusing on those who have professed faith in Christ. Uh, The problem with declaring in song and prayer that I am a forgiven worm and that there is no health in me and that I'm a miserable wretch is that I'm saying in the end, I am shameful. Because remember, we were saying, guilt is I've done something bad, shame is I am something bad. If this is our theology, we essentially are saying, I'm disgusting. No, no, Pastor, the good news is you're forgiven and disgusting. (laughs) But still, still, uh, I'm disgusting. And what I want to suggest is that isn't how the New Testament describes us. Um, let me give you just a quick survey. The New Testament says, first of all, that Christ is in us. Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That we are in Christ, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together in Christ. That we're hidden with Christ. Colossians 3.1, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That we share in Christ's resurrection life. Romans 6.4 If we've been united with him in a death like his, we'll be united with him in a resurrection like his. That we have put off the old self and on the new self. Colossians 3.10 You have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image of God. We are new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any was in Christ, he is a new creation. We are saints. Paul writes the Ephesians who struggled with lots of sins to the saints who were in Ephesus. We are clean. John 15, 2, already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. We desire to please God in the core of our being. Romans 7, for I delight in the law of God and my inner being. So yes, we do struggle with sin and we must acknowledge that and the confession is an important part of the Christian life. But at the core, we are not primarily miserable, disgusting sinners. We are saints. We are new creatures in Christ. Uh, my, um, the most moving image in Scripture for me about our identity in Christ is that we are children of God. Uh, 1 John 3, one, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And that's what our passage in Galatians is exploring with us tonight. Um, Paul is reminding the Galatians that they're saved by faith alone and describing some of the benefits of our salvation. And one of those benefits is our adoption. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the law. In other words, he forgave us our guilt, but that's not all, so that we might receive adoption as sons, children of God. So our entire relationship with God has changed. Some presentations of the gospel seem to say, you are a guilty convict. Christ died for your sins. You're still a disgusting, guilty convict, but you're free now. This goes further. It says, you've actually been adopted into the family of God. We now have the capacity to call God Abba, because you are sons. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Father. We now relate differently to the Father than we could have if we were still a slave. Chapter 4, verse 7, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, what does this have to do with our topic of healing shame? I've been thinking about this series for uh, many years, actually. And I've been trying to identify several of the most important biblical themes that a believer needs to wrestle with to find freedom from shame. Last week it was knowing the difference between guilt and shame. Tonight it is embracing your identity in Christ as a beloved son or daughter of God. And what I find in practice, in my own life and in your life, is that so many times when we fail, we do not feel the freedom to relate to the Father like a healthy family would. You know, my uh, sister's adopted, and if I applied, or if we applied the way Christians often approach God, it would have gone like this in my family. When Jennifer did something wrong, my dad would say, "Jennifer." you must first remind yourself that you are not worthy of this family. That without my merciful grace for you and your mothers, you would be dead. Only by my mercy and grace do you belong here. Well, that's not how my parents related to her. And I don't think that's how our father relates to us. I want to tell a little story um, that I think illustrates the redemptive power of adoption. I want to read from an essay many of you uh, read. That's probably a joke. <laughs> many of you probably didn't read it. But it was in uh, Christianity Today uh, about six years ago. It's called Rethinking the $3,000 Mission Trip. And I was trying to, I was writing for our suburban brothers and sisters, and I was trying to say, you don't have to go to Mexico. Uh, I can show you plenty of need, call me. Um, And and so I decided to begin the story with a true story of a boy on our swim team, and I called him Martin. I'm just going to read you a little bit. Painfully thin for his age, Martin shivered uncontrollably by the side of the city swimming pool. He held his sides in a futile effort to keep warm. I was puzzled. A rare June heat wave had swept through Knoxville and the temperature was pushing 90. A few weeks later, Martin squeezed in beside me on the bus ride to our first swim meet. He was a wiry, bouncy 10-year-old with mischievous blue eyes and a killer smile. And he could rarely sit still long enough to hear the workout set. But today he slumped down against the window and curled into a ball. Coach Doug, Martin asked after a few minutes, Can I have my dinner now? I haven't eaten in two days. A father of four, I know a con when I see one. Nobody, I teased. You need to wait until after the meet, like everybody else. The summer got hotter. Martin kept shivering. One evening, a social worker who knew Martin dropped by the pool. And I asked her if she knew why Martin always shivered. She pulled me aside and whispered, it's because he's literally starving. The woman he lives with told a judge that she was, quote, starving the devil out of him. And I felt sick. I returned to his story at the end of the essay. Martin never stopped shivering that summer, but he did start swimming faster. I made some calls to see if Martin might join a year-round swim program. The local swimming community was eager to help. Then Martin stopped showing up. Nobody at his house returned our calls, and Martin missed the rest of our meets. At our year-end swim banquet, we gave Martin the Most Improved Swimmer Award. He wasn't there to receive it. A friend and I drove the award to his house after the banquet. After many knocks, a man answered the door, and he wasn't happy to see us. We handed him Martin's trophy and told him how well Martin swam. I don't know where he is, the man said, and he shut the door. When I submitted the essay, uh, the editor wrote back, said, we can't publish this. And I said, why? He said, the ending is far too discouraging. (laughs) And I said, that's the whole point. (laughs) We don't have happy endings in this kind of work so very often. However, there's a happy ending here. We lost touch with Martin for two years, and eventually we found him again and he began swimming. His mother was no longer able to take care of him and had to give him up. And at the time, a, a young couple, Paul and Caroline Fortenbury, were praying about adopting a child. And one of Martin's coaches, Sarah McCall, encouraged them to consider adopting Martin. And they did. And if we could put the next slide up on... Um, December 21st, 2015, Brian was there. It was one of the happiest days of my life. Uh, Paul and Caroline adopted. His real name is Markel, and his lovely sister is Kiana. And I talked to Caroline this week, and I was praying about how, how can we explore this together. And I said, can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to adopt these lovely children, and she said, first of all, they struggled a lot with PTSD, and that was hard, but they were able to love them through it, and I thought, you know, don't you think we all come into God's family with PTSD? I mean, it's hard down here, so don't you think we all come in kind of out of whack, and I suspect he loves us through it. And then she said, I, I feel as though they're my own children, period. I can't imagine life before them. We've walked through so much together already, even though it's only been four years since I heard their names. When Markel and Kiana hurt, I hurt. I would do anything to keep them from trouble. There doesn't feel like a distinction between them and you Owen, know, our naturally born son. We're all a family, and they are all my kids. <laughs> And then I said, well, what about when they blow it? How, how, do you, how do you relate to them then? And She said, when they make mistakes, I want them to come to me and be honest. And I want to work through areas they're struggling with with them. I don't want them to hide or allow areas of their lives to stay in the dark. I want what's best for them in bringing everything into the light. We choose to love them no matter what. Don't you think that's what God feels towards us when we blow it? I think Jesus knew that we would have a hard time with getting our minds around this, and so He told a great story about it. It's called the story of the prodigal son. And uh, uh, I mean, we could—I just sketch this to kind of give you a little. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh, Of course, that's Rembrandt's great painting. It's uh, on the hallway into my office. A son makes a mess of his life. He's totally humiliated. He's cut off from his dad. Nearly dies. Broken and repentant, he returns home. He's so ashamed he doesn't expect mercy. He says, Father, I've sinned before heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your slaves. (laughs) The father has none of it. He runs to embrace him, clothes him, and throws a great party. Now, I mean, there's... The young man knows... He knows he's done wrong. I mean, there's a shoe off. His tunic is stained. His hair is thin and disheveled. And by the way, if, if you ever want to think about this, the shame in religion that's always trying to counterfeit grace, spend a little time meditating on the older son. Not tonight. (laughs) Now I want you to look at the father's face. Many of you have studied this painting. And particularly his hands. Do you notice that one is a man's hand and one's a a woman's hand? This uh, Rembrandt's way of all the the care that a mom and dad can give coming through the dad, I want you to just look at the dad and the son for just about 15 seconds. That's who's waiting for you when you come home. That's what you can expect when you return to God. Henry Nowen, the gifted spiritual writer, at a very low point in his life, went to a retreat center, and that a, a print of that painting was on the door. and It was so moving to him that he spent a year meditating on it and wrote a lovely book about it. And one of the things that, what I love about him is that he was so honest, but he admits that he really has trouble believing it's true. Believing that he really will be received like that. And he said, although claiming my true identity as a child of God, I still live as though the God to whom I'm returning demands an explanation. I still think about his love as conditional, about home as a place I'm not yet fully sure of. And I keep entertaining doubts about whether I will be truly welcome when I get there. As I look at my spiritual journey, my long and fatiguing trip home, I see how full it is of guilt about the past, worries about the future. I realize my failures and I know that I've lost the dignity of my sonship. I'm not yet able to fully believe that where my failings are great, grace is always greater. Still clinging to my sense of worthlessness. I project for myself a place far below that which belongs to the sun. I think we experience shame, we live in shame, and we're in bondage to shame because we 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 can't at a soul level, at a deep level, actually believe that it's true. I mentioned I've I'm going to help helping our mother church, Cedar Springs. They planted us 14 years ago, and they're without a pastor. And so I'm doing this series out there um, for four weeks. And this this morning, uh, some folks come up, and uh, this lovely person this lovely person says, um, "You know, you really forgot something important." <laughs> and I said, "I bet I forgot a lot of it. <laughs> I got a couple more services here. Why don't you help me out?" And uh, <laughs> and it was so. She said, "You know what?" In your sermon, you talked about how healthy parents wouldn't treat us that way. You know where this is going, don't you? What if my parents shamed me? And so whenever you talk to me about the father, what I remember is is being told I was disgusting because I wanted to wear a two-piece to the pool. I'm not sure how we heal our souls to the point where that's what's true. I think we're trying to explore that together this winter. Um, I will make one suggestion. I, I read a book for this series called The Soul of Shame. It's uh, it's about the most recent brain research on, uh, on shame. And many of you I know are studying brain research. People are talking about this a lot. But the... His main premise is that very early in life, when we are shamed by our parents, and often, beloved, it's our spiritual parents, uh, our spiritual fathers, our spiritual mothers, me, uh, that very early in life, we develop shaming narratives that are really more like the one that the elder son's believing And we live out of those narratives, and they actually create neural pathways in our brain that prompt us to respond and think the same way over and over and over again. And so you can't just sit here and hear a sermon and see a painting and go, ah, that's much better, I'll change. Because it's actually hardwired into your your brain. But the other thing that I'm learning uh, is that your brain can change. And you can rewire your neural pathways. And I think one of the ways you do it is by identifying your shame narrative, realizing when you're living out of it, and then consciously choosing a new narrative. And when you do that over time enough, your neural pathways will reconfigure and you will be able uh, to live more free from shame. So my prayer for us is that we could be the kind of a people, the kind of a community where we relate to each other in such a way that the narratives we tell about religion and God are changed and realigned with the truth of God's word. And that we begin to experience grace from one another at the depths of our soul. Let's pray.